Ephesians, the fifth chapter. It's amazing that any of us survived childhood. Think about it. Think about the stubbed toes. Think about the bicycle wrecks, the bugs we ate, the illegal explosives we played with. I'm speaking mostly to boys here. I remember my bicycle wrecks coming in bloody, or my motorcycle wrecks later on, or car crashes, or the time my brother stabbed me with a pencil, and I stabbed him back with a knife. Boys. <laughs> I remember having my brother throw bricks at me, huge ones, boys. But we did survive, and our parents worried about us every step of the way. My mother still worries about me. She tells me, please, I know you have a motorcycle, but don't ever tell me that you ride your motorcycle. Don't inform me that you went out for a bike ride. I said, okay. From the first moments that we learned to walk after toddlerhood, we hear the words, be careful. Watch where you walk. Watch before you cross the street. Look at both sides. And here we are told how to walk in a Christian walk, our spiritual lives. It is a word that is highlighted seven times in this section. We're told all the way at the beginning of verse 1 of chapter 4, have a walk worthy of the calling with which you are called. In chapter 5, verse 2, walk in love. Verse 8, walk as children of light. Verse 15, walk carefully or circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. Now these are metaphors, and the Bible is filled with stories, metaphors, and here's why. Because when we hear word pictures, metaphors, it does draw an image in our mind that helps us learn the lesson. But that's just the first step. The, the purpose of Bible study isn't to learn metaphors and word pictures and descriptions or Greek words. What's the purpose of Bible study? Not to learn the Bible as much as to live according to the will of God, the truths of the Bible. That's our goal tonight. I hope that's your goal. I hope your goal is to be conformed into the image of Christ. We learn that we might live, or we learn that we might walk. That's the idea of the metaphor. That's the goal of Bible study. Jesus said, if you know these things, happy are you if you do them. And let me just say, in sort of expanding that, if you know things and you don't do them, you won't be happy. Oh, you'll be filled with knowledge. You can even be a Bible nerd. You could be a doctor of theology and know more than the rest of us and be very erudite in your applications. 
So what? And I think Paul would agree with me. I think Paul would say, so what? Because that's the manner of the way he writes. Chapters 1 through 3, Paul says, this is what every Christian ought to know. And then chapters 4 through 6, based on that, this is what every Christian ought to do. And that's the goal of his letter. He's informing the Ephesian church, or the Roman church, or the Corinthian church. He's informing them with knowledge in order that they might practice. And that's the metaphor, to walk with the Lord. In the 1600s, the French philosopher René Descartes coined the famous philosophical term cognito ergo sum, I know, therefore I am. The idea behind that little statement is that we are validated in our existence by the act of thought. Because I am a thinking creature, I am. It validates my existence. That sort of summed up that, that idea by a philosophical axiom. I would sum up Ephesians by saying, I know, therefore I do. I know, therefore I do. Knowing your wealth and your position in Christ ought to cause you, us, to do certain things, to be a certain way. Let's uh, look at verse 8 tonight and go down to verse 14 for the first section of this. We want to look at walking in the light and then walking in wisdom. We've already spoken about walking in love, verses 1 through 7. Verse 8, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, proving what is acceptable to the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore he says, Awake, you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. Now the theme of that paragraph is obvious. Walk in the light. Back in verse 1, he says, be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love, verse 2. In imitating God, we ask, okay, what's God like? John tells us, 1 John chapter 5, God is love. That's the first paragraph of Ephesians 5. John also tells us, 1 John chapter 1, God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. So, to be a follower of Jesus Christ, you must be willing to walk in the light. But that's a metaphor, right? That's a word picture. What does it mean to walk in the light? Well, it's interesting. As you look at the Bible, light speaks physically of the glory of God. Light is brilliant. Light reveals. Light is even intimidating. And whenever God shows up, he often shows up in something that is characteristically bright. 
when God comes on the scene. In creation, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. And darkness was upon the, upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of the Lord hovered over the waters. And God said, the very first thing the Creator spoke is, Let there be light. And there was light. Years later, God made a covenant with Abraham. We read about that on Sunday mornings. And he made a covenant with this old guy. And the way he made a covenant was interesting. Abraham took several animals and cut their dead carcasses in half and laid them on either side of a path. And when it was dark and the sun was going down, the Lord revealed himself, showed up on the scene by having a bright burning lamp or torch kind of hovering between these pieces going back and forth. A light. In the wilderness, how did God guide his people at night? By a fire in the sky, a pillar of fire, a pillar of cloud by day. Light. Go forward even past our time to the city of the future, the new Jerusalem. The Bible says the city had no need, Revelation 21, no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of the Lord is its light, and the Lamb is its light. So, physically, light speaks of the glory of God. Morally, in the Bible, light speaks of the holiness of God. God is pure. God is flawless. There is no error, and that's what 1 John means, in Him is light, and there is no darkness at all. 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul describes God as God who alone is immortal, who dwells in inapproachable light. Morally perfect. Rabbi Harold Kushner doesn't think so. He wrote the book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. And this well-meaning but erred rabbi said, you and I need to forgive God. Because God created the universe, but it's gotten out of his control. And so many things happen in his universe that aren't perfect, that are beyond his will. He can't help it. He can't do anything about it. He's impotent. So you need to be big enough, really bigger than God in your personality, and forgive poor God for the mistakes he's made. You don't need to forgive God. There's nothing to forgive God for. He's morally perfect. He's absolutely flawless and righteous. Light speaks physically of the glory of God, morally of the holiness of God, and intellectually, God sp light speaks of the knowledge of God. He, God knows everything. He's the ultimate enlightened one. We, we talk about the dark ages and the age of enlightenment when we figure things out. Now we're enlightened. God knows more than all of the most knowledgeable men and women put together, and then some, and then some. He's omniscient. He's all-knowing. So, you are to walk before God who knows everything about you. That's an uncomfortable thought. 
God knows what I thought last night. God knows the look that I gave the driver today on the freeway. And the look you gave the driver, or the hand signal you gave the driver. Hopefully it was this. God bless you. God was there and knows the video you saw late last night, the words you said to your wife, etc. Now, that's a little bit of background. Go back to verse 8. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Here's the inevitable result. Here's the therefore. Walk as children of light. When you came to Christ, you did something metaphorically, analogously. You stepped out of the realm of darkness into the realm of light, out of spiritual darkness into spiritual light. Now you can see clearly. And I bet you, if I were to interview you and asked about your testimony, you would say something like John Newton said when he wrote the song Amazing Grace. I once was lost, but now I am found, was blind, but now I see. I remember witnessing to a girl on the Huntington Beach Pier. I have a lot of questions about God. Okay, well, let's talk about them. There's not enough time tonight. And as we began to talk, she admitted she had a need deep within her heart for meaning and purpose, and she didn't know what to do, and she yearned after God. She admitted that. She knew she was a sinner. She admitted that. But I've got a lot of questions still. I said, tell you what, why don't you pray to receive Christ first, now? And here's my number. You can call me at my office or at my home, and I would love to meet with you. And let's go through all of those questions, and I'll take as much time as you need. She goes, deal. <laughs> I said, okay. So we prayed, and it was sincere. And while we were praying, I watched her countenance change. Tears come to her eyes. A humility overtake her. Instead of this arrogant, I've got some questions for God, she just broke before God, and she wept like a child. And at the end of it, as I gave her my number, she said, I don't need it. Suddenly, those questions are unimportant, and I feel I have answers. I was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. You stepped into the realm from darkness into the realm of light. So what does it mean to walk in the light? Well, you know what the word means already. We've covered it several times in this series, peripateo, to order your behavior habitually order your behavior in the realm of light. Okay, let's cover those three things I, I mentioned about light in the Bible. If physically light speaks of the glory of God, for you to walk in the light means you walk in the light of God's glory. Translation, you make it your goal in life to please God. You live for His glory. Well, that's a new thought for Americans especially who were taught from growing up that life is all about me, revolves around me, my comfort, my joy, my, 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 oh my. Now we suddenly discover that's not what life's about, it's about Him. And to step out of darkness into light and walk in the light is to live 
in the idea that my life is centered on pleasing God and giving God glory. How do I do that? Well, how do you do it in any relationship? If you want to please the other person, which is essential in a relationship, by the way, just in case if you're married and having problems, newsflash. Amos, the prophet, said, how can two walk together except they be agreed? At least you should agree to work on pleasing one another. Well, how, do you, how do you please God? You find out what God likes. And you find out what God doesn't like. And you don't do what God doesn't like, and you do what God likes. That helps. That's a good start. And the way to do that is you read this book, and it tells you a lot about God. And you suddenly realize, oh, God doesn't want me to do those things, but God really loves it when I engage in these activities and have these thoughts. That's why he's given us his word. Your word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. So to walk in the light means that we live with the purpose of bringing God glory. Number two, since morally light speaks of the holiness of God, we live in the light of God's holiness, purity, moral character, and integrity. What that means is that we must refuse to keep a hidden life. You can't have a, a duplicitous lifestyle. That is, I'm one way at church and another way when I'm alone. I'm this way during the day at work, but when I'm alone in my apartment or a hotel room at night and everybody's gone to bed, this is how I really am. Come out of the shadows, bring everything in honesty and integrity and sincerity into the light. Refuse to live a hidden life. Will Rogers put it this way. He said, you should live your life in such a way that you would never be ashamed to sell your parrot to the town gossip. <laughs> I love that. That's a novel thought. I'm going to sell my parrot who has seen and says what I say talks. I'm going to sell it to the town gossip, and I'm not ashamed to do it, walking in the light. Third. Since intellectually light speaks of the knowledge of God, we live knowing that God knows and sees everything. We're not going to pull one over on him. Proverbs 5, the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all of his goings. Lewis Berry Schaefer once said, secret sin on earth is open scandal in heaven. How's that one for you? Secret sin on earth is open scandal in heaven. So walk in the light. Order your behavior in the realm of those things. Verse 9. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Now, some of your Bibles don't say that. Some of your Bibles, if you have a New International or another translation that's based on another set of manuscripts, which is a, a whole entire Bible study in itself, I won't get into that. But... There is another set of texts that don't say the fruit of the Spirit, but the fruit of the light. I think that's a better translation. The fruit of walking in the light, the test that you're walking in the light, you might say, the proof, are these three stellar characteristics. Here they are. Goodness, righteousness, and truth. Now, this is sort of a, a summary statement, three characteristics. Look at them again. 
that form the, the test to see if you're walking in the light. You see, folks, the true test of faith is not, I made a decision two years ago to receive Christ. The true test of walking in the light isn't, well, I attend church once a week or once a month or whenever I can. The true test of walking in the light and faith in Christ isn't, I'm on the membership roll of this church or I've been baptized. The true test are these three characteristics. Goodness, righteousness, truth. These are summary characteristics. You see it in the change in a person's life. I'm not saying that true Christians shouldn't do those things that I mentioned, but because even the flesh can do things like baptism and church attendance and giving money and making a decision emotionally, it's not a reliable gauge. What is a reliable gauge? The change that is encapsulated in these three characteristics, goodness, righteousness, and truth, integrity, honesty. Proving, it says, proving what is acceptable to the Lord. The word proving could be translated learn as you go. He, Paul's very practical, and I sure love that about the Bible. You know, I know we read it, and it's put in such a way that it might be a little awkward for us, and we read through and go, I, I don't get that. But, but look at it. Learning as you go or proving what is acceptable to the Lord. We learn to test things. I hope we do. I hope we learn to ask questions like, Okay, I'm going to do this. Before I do it, I'm going to bring this out in the light and, and I'm going to learn to see if this is, I'm going to prove to see if this is what God wants. Lord, uh, would you have me do this? Would Jesus do this? Watch this TV show, read this book, have that friend make that decision. You just bring everything out and you test all things. You go, well, how do I know specifically the will of God? Well, and we'll see this again here in a moment, but the Bible tells us generally the will of God, sometimes specifically, but usually there are general principles, right? You take the general principles of Scripture and apply them the, to the particular thing you're going through, and that's a good start. That's why the Bible is knowing God's will 101. That's where you start. Learn the general principles of goodness, righteousness, and truth. Bring everything you're about to do, engage in, decide upon, into that arena. Is this something the Lord would have me to do? Verse 11, he continues, and he makes his point stronger. You'll notice, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them or reprove them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. Have no fellowship. Don't participate in. Don't tolerate them. Live a life that sends a message. I'm going to make a comment, and I'm going to do it quickly. The church today has changed its focus. The new thing, the new uh, emphasis, is to create a seeker-friendly church, they call it. And I don't know if you've ever been to a seeker-friendly church, but you'll find that often I have, often no Bibles are brought, 
Often skits take the place of Bible study. Songs are innocuously absent of salvation, the blood of Christ, the need for salvation, purity, holiness, because they say, well, there are seekers present and you might offend the seeker. The seeker might feel uncomfortable with that message. First of all, they're wrong in their presupposition. The Bible says no one really seeks God. None seek after God, no, not one. Now you can find me an exception and I'm going to show you that scripture. Oh, I found somebody really seeking God. Oh, really? The Bible says it is God who is seeking true worshipers. Now God puts within us that emptiness, that vacuum, and we, we want something, we, we look for some meaning, some purpose, and some will say that's seeking God. But no one, according to God, is really seeking God. God is seeking lost man. If you live a righteous life, you should feel comfortable around God's people and God's truth and God's word. If you're not living a righteous life, but you refuse to obey God, don't want to walk after God, you should feel somewhat uncomfortable around God's people. I can see it. I'm around people a lot, and I can read them pretty easily. I can tell when they're at ease or when they're very uncomfortable. And I often like to probe, why are you so shifty? Why won't you look me in the eye? Why do you feel so uncomfortable? There could be a number of reasons, but one of the reasons might be, I'm not living like God wants me to live. Does that mean we should be perfect? Who can be perfect? Does that mean we should be authentic and repentant? Yes. That's walking in the light. That's refusing to live a hidden life. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light. The light exposes. Okay, stop for a moment and think of the life of Jesus. Jesus, the light of the world, exposing people. And he did. And he made people, even Pharisees, religious leaders, feel uncomfortable around him. He felt others, made others feel very comfortable. Repentant sinners. He would embrace them, bring them in. The disciples really didn't look upon the Pharisees and the scribes as being in darkness or out of the will of God or evil. They didn't think of that. They were the religious elite. They respected them. The disciples revered them. They were Jewish. All the people did. Until Jesus threw pure light on them and exposed them. And don't do it now, but you might want to read chapters like Matthew 23, where Jesus very boldly throws light. And this is what he says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! Whoa! That got the disciples' attention as well as the Pharisees' attention. What's he saying to them? He continues, You are like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but inside filled with dead men's bones and all corruption. Woe unto you blind guides who strain out at a gnat and swallow a camel. 
who canvas sea and land to make a proselyte, and when you do, you make him twice as much a child of hell as you yourselves. Okay. <laughs> Disciples didn't know any of that until Jesus, as pure light, lived among them and threw that light upon them. So, to navigate in life, you need to turn on the headlights because you live in darkness. Otherwise, you'll crash. You, you won't be able to see. Turn them on. Navigate through life that way. Let your life be a living sermon wherever you go, by the way you live, by what you say, by who you are. Walk in the light. Therefore, he says, verse 14, Awake, you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. The question would be, when you read that verse, who is he? Therefore, he says, who's he? Well, it's capitalized in, in uh, my Bible, so it would infer the author, Paul, is saying, God says, awake, you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. The problem is, we can't find a scripture where this is taken from. It is thought by most commentators and theologians that verse 14 is part of an Easter hymn sung by the early church it was as a song of invitation because it so summarily capsulizes the gospel that if you come in repentance you'll get changed you'll step out of darkness and walk in the light awake you who sleep arise from the dead and Christ will give you light I would sum up all that Paul has said here by Proverbs chapter 4, and I can't remember which verse, maybe verse 18. It's a stab in the dark. Forgive the analogy. It says, The path of the just is like the shining sun that grows brighter and brighter unto the perfect day. The path of the just is like the shining sun that grows brighter and brighter unto the perfect day. Our lives should be growing brighter as we walk in fellowship with him, shining brighter as people live their lives around us, so we're showing them how to come to Christ by exposing sin by our own life. Robert Louis Stevenson used to write the story how he loved as a child to watch the lamplighters go through the streets of Edinburgh, Scotland with their torches and climb up the ladder and open the little door on the lamppost and put the flame inside and light the torch and go down and light up all the streets. One night, when he was a little child, he was looking out the window, and he said to his parents, Look, Mommy, Daddy, the men are punching holes in the darkness again. Isn't that a great description? Isn't that a description of our lives, supposedly? Should we not be punching holes in the darkness by lives lived in the light? Okay, let's look at verse 15 and on down to verse 21, and we'll close tonight. We looked at walking in love, the first seven verses. We looked at walking in the light, verses 8 through 14. Now this is a walk in wisdom. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. 
Go back to verse 15 and notice the longest word in the verse. What is it? Circumspectly. It comes from two Latin words, that English word, circumspectly. The two Latin words combined mean to look around. So as you walk, look around. As you jog, look around. There may be landmines in the area. The point that Paul is making is as you walk through this life, as you order your behavior spiritually, place your steps carefully, accurately because of the darkness and because uh, the days are evil, verse 16. Step precisely. Step accurately. Some of you will remember the news story back in the summer, I think it was July of 1970, Kurt Wallenda. Does that name ring a bell? Kurt Wallenda took a very careful walk over the Tallulah Gorge in Georgia. The span of the gorge, 821 feet. The depth of the gorge, 750 feet. He walked on a tightrope across the gorge. He had to walk like this, looking around, circumspectly, accurately, carefully. Each step was counted, 616 steps taken in 20 minutes to get from point A to point B. And don't you know that each step was careful? Because a misstep would mean paralysis or death. Now, you may want to just plant that little picture in your mind as you leave tonight. How are you to live your life tomorrow? Carefully. Those choices you're going to make, the people you hang out with or want to marry or things you want to do, walk carefully because there are consequences. Walk circumspectly, not as fools. The contrast here is between the fools and the wise. So. The first stepping stone, I guess you might say, the first stepping stone in, in, in walking in wisdom or, or, or walking circumspectly is to walk in wisdom. Don't be a fool, be wise. You know, you think of somebody foolish, you think of somebody with a low IQ or go, you know. That's not the biblical idea of a fool. You can be, you can have a high IQ and be a fool. Psalm 14, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. A person who goes to college and gets degrees and makes it successful and lives a life without God is a fool and walks as a fool. And you might have a low IQ or no background in education and be a blue-collar worker, and that's fine, but you can love God with all your heart and you're wise. You're wise. You could float through life and do what everybody else does and not look for the stepping stones and drown in the sea of iniquity. So the first step in walking circumspectly is the stepping stone of wisdom. Verse 16, the stepping, stepping stone of opportunity, I would call this verse, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Redeeming the time. The stepping stone of opportunity. How many tonight do we have here who are in their mid-30s? Would you raise your hand? Raise it high. You're in your mid-30s. That's all? Come on. That's it? Okay. Congratulations. If you are 35 years old, listen to this, 
If you're 35 years old, you have 500 days left to live the way you choose. Hey, <laughs> Skip, pardon me. Uh, <laughs> you have fuzzy math, quoting the president. 500 days, I'm 35. If I live to be the average 70 or 71 or, or better, how do I have 500 days? Well, subtract work time, subtract sleep, subtract eating, subtract medical visits, um, travel time to and from work, etc. cetera, um, subtract time stealers, we all have them. And when you boil all that down, if you're 35, the next 36 years of your life, you have 500 days left to do with as you please. Boy, life looks different in that perspective, doesn't it? Now look at that verse again. Redeeming the time because the days are evil. Every day is a precious gift. Any extra time, redeem it. What does that mean? The Greek word, ex agorazo. Some of you have a little Greek background. You know exactly that comes from two words, ek or ex, to call out or to remove. Agora, what's an agora? It's a marketplace. If you go to a Greek city, they take you to the agora, the marketplace, where everybody shops, to take out of the marketplace. The word redeem literally means then to buy back out of the marketplace. So the point is, in redeeming the time, is to seize the opportunity or the opportunities afforded by time, seize those opportunities and get the most profit out of them spiritually. Seize the opportunities in the time you have left to get the most profit out of them spiritually. And that gives you the sense of the word, the meaning of the word, ex agorazo, redeeming the time because the days are evil. If you live to be 70 or not, if you live to be 90 or not, if you live to be 45 or not, at whatever time is the time appointed for your death, at that moment you will step into eternity. And if you know Christ, you're going to go to heaven. And you know a lot of Christians go, oh, I just can't wait to get to heaven. Cool. But let me tell you something. When you step into the kingdom of heaven, you will never again ever be able to witness for Christ. You won't. You won't be able to tell a sinner how to get to heaven. You won't be able to give out a tract. You won't be able to have the luxury of being persecuted for Christ. All of that ends in heaven. So you have time left to do those things now. Buy it back. Seize the opportunity. Seize the day. That's the second stepping stone. The third stepping stone is in verse 17, the stepping stone of purpose. Do not be drunk. Oh, no. Verse 17. I'm in verse 18. Verse 17. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Okay. How do you find the will of God? You take the general principles of God's word and you apply them to the particular situation that you're in. And that general template over the specifics is a good place to start. And you'll find in that book, you have other things like in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. So you use godly counsel and prayer and waiting on the Lord, etc. So don't be unwise, but understand what the will of God is. Verse 18, and do not be drunk with wine. This is the stepping stone of spiritual power, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Why does Paul 
compare being drunk with wine to being filled with the Spirit? Be careful how you answer that. I've had some people say, because you lose control when you're filled with the Spirit and you babble like a, a goony bird and say weird things because that's the will of God. And that, that's not what he means at all. But some people think that's what it means, and that's not the idea of the text. The idea of the text is when you take alcohol and you take enough of it, you will be controlled by the substance. It will have such an influence on you that you lose control because you're controlled by another, in this case, alcohol. Don't do that, but be controlled by the Spirit, filled with the Spirit. When you think of being filled with the Spirit, you might have all sorts of ideas in your mind of what that means depending on how you grew up. Can I make it easy for you? Picture it like a glove. A glove needs a hand to fill it. A glove is meant to do work but cannot. It's useless. It's powerless until the hand goes inside and fills the glove. Then the glove can be powerful in its operation. Be filled. Be controlled. Let the Lord, let the Holy Spirit so fill and control your life like a hand does the glove. How can you tell if a person's filled with the Spirit? Because he goes, Shandala, Shandala, Shandala. She wrote a Honda from the curio shop. No, not necessarily, pardon me. Okay, let me answer the question by asking a question. How can you tell if a glass is full of water, if it's opaque? How could you tell if it's full of water? Bump into it. You'll get wet. Bump into a Christian. If you bump into a Christian filled with the Holy Spirit, you're going to get somebody full of the character of that Spirit, which is holy. He's holy. She's holy. And they're filled with the Holy Spirit. I can tell because I was with them today. I bumped into them. And that's what came out. The fruit of the Spirit. Love, peace, joy, etc., etc. Controlled by, filled with the Spirit. Finally, and we close with this because we are out of time and we are at the end of our text, it's the stepping stone of fellowship. That's how you walk circumspectly. Speaking to one another. So that means you're with somebody else, another Christian. In psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another in the fear of God. Notice the repetition of the one another. That's a, another stepping stone of a spiritual walk. Walk in fellowship. The secret of not losing interest in anything is to be with people who enjoy to do the same thing. There's motorcycle clubs. They look at motorcycle magazines that talk about engines and drag pipes and carburetors and going from point A to point B. Or bicyclists talk about gears and frames and grams of how much it weighs. Or uh, fishermen get together in groups. And when you're together with someone who enjoys the same pursuit as you, it keeps your interest up. As a Christian, walk with others who walk with you. I was blessed to hear Olaf at the beginning talk about getting together before a battle or daily with some of those who were other believers 
that were with him, getting together with them, praying with them, reading the Bible with them. And that's why we need to gather often. Gather in large groups, gather in small groups, gather in prayer groups. Because once a Christian is isolated, he starts to drift. That's why the body of Christ is so important and we need fellowship with each other. Did you hear the story about the man who lost his car keys? He lost them. He was out, it was night, he was out on the street under the lamppost and he was looking for his keys. He asked his friend to come help him. His friend was looking around and they didn't find him. Finally, his friend said, do you remember where you lost him? The guy said, yeah, I, I lost him in the garage. You, you lost him in the garage and you're looking for him here? He goes, yeah, because the light's better here. Okay. Could it be that some of you have lost your way? You don't exactly know where, but you've come here because the light's better. Other people are shining. They're glowing. They've got purpose. They know where they're going. They've got direction. Oh, they're not perfect. We're all flawed, but the light's better here than out there. You're searching for meaning and purpose, and you discover people here sitting around you have it. The light's better. May our light lead you to the light of the world.